Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Pradeep Sangha is the world's leader in complete strategic advising. He's an award-winning author of The Complete Man and the TV show host of Mind Your Own Business. He's also an entrepreneur, speaker, and podcaster. And in addition to hearing about all that, the focus for the purposes of this podcast with Pradeep is going to be all about family business and intergenerational issues and deals. So Pradeep, so excited to have you on the podcast. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So before we get into all of that great stuff, I want to take you back to when you were a kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm guessing an author and a speaker and a podcaster and a strategist and coach and somebody who knows about family business, probably, you know, maybe maybe all that was there back then, but I'm, I'm guessing maybe not. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> you tell me. Yeah, you know, it, I had an interesting upbringing. I, my, my parents were immigrants. They worked on an orchard. They had an orchard. That was our family business. Okay. And my parents, I would say my parents' dream for me was to be a doctor. Sure. So there, there, there was a part of, a part of my childhood where being a doctor was, was in the playing cards. I actually went to university for biochemistry. So, but then I switched over to business and financial management, but that was, that was the first aspect on vet. I would say veterinarian. That was a big part of my dream. I love animals. I grew up with animals and I always wanted to help animals. And so I had a passion for animals, but the challenge was my parents said, you know what? That's not necessarily a very respectable profession. <laughs> That's so not the kind of doctor we meant. For yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so because, because I respected my parents so much and they had come to this country to, we weren't born at that time, but they, they basically devoted their lives to my brother and I and, and yeah. building a life for us because they had nothing. I basically said, okay, let me, let me give this a try. Maybe I can do something to make you guys proud. That's funny. You know, it's in so many cultures, you know, and I, I don't, I'm not sure of your cultural background, but I, but I, but I, I'm guessing, you know, South Asian of some type, right? I yeah, don't know if you Indian, do Indian yeah. descent, but, but certainly I'm of Jewish descent and, you know, there's so, there, there's so much commonality. It's like, you know, doctor, lawyer, maybe someplace engineer, like, you know, the, 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 the immigrant <laughs> parent story and what, and what they want you to be, you know, yeah. usually, usually entrepreneurs not on the, you know, not on the list on immigrant parents. <laughs> no, my parents actually thought I was crazy when I left the corporate world because I had a good gig in the corporate world. And my, I remember my parents, my dad saying, did you just throw your entire life away? So my, my parents very much the same. And I did the same. So we have yeah. that in common. One other question, looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something smaller when you were younger or early in your career, whatever, whatever comes to mind, anything that was a deal. Yeah, I would say in my early 20s, that's when I built my first house. 
Uh-huh. So that, that was, that was a big deal for me. So I'd made that decision. Uh, it was actually, I had a, uh, my best friend at the time, we were actually having a beer and we said, why don't we just build a house? And we said, yeah, let's do it, build it and sell it. And away we go. So that was, uh, that was an interesting experience that I had at, at that age. It was a ton of learning, a ton of challenges. I can tell you, I learned a lot. A lot of it wasn't fun, but it was probably one of the best experiences that I ever had. I love that. I love that. And, and you said, how, how old were you then? I think it was 22 at that time, 21, nice. 22. Yeah. So what had you do that at that age? And I guess that ties into a broader question. Like, do you feel like you were one, even though you started in corporate that you were one of the, like, I feel like I was a born entrepreneur. I was running businesses when I was 15, whatever. It was really much so, more so my family upbringing and the indoctrination that you go to school and then you get a graduate degree and then you go into a profession that had yeah. me do that. But, but really in my heart, I always knew I wanted to work for myself. You know, was it more of that for you or, or did it come a different way? Yeah, it was mainly. So when I was in the corporate world, I was an intrapreneur, you could say. So I was the guy that came in. They called me the guy that used to blow things up. <laughs> so I would go in and just go into divisions and departments and organizations and blow them up and rebuild them. And that's what I'd love to do. And that would, that for me, entrepreneurship was my ability to do that on my own terms. And so that's the part I love about entrepreneurship. I love building things. If, if I was to equate my, uh, my, you can say strength, my ability, some people say superpower, it, it would be similar to an engineer slash architect. Yeah. I love building businesses. I love structuring things so that we provide value for our clients or customers and ultimately make money. And, and, and to use a building analogy for what you just said, you know, sometimes you got to demo what's there, right? Before you build the new stuff, right? Oh yeah. A lot of the times because it's like an, yeah, it's like an old home. Doing a renovation on an old home is way tougher than building it from scratch. So yeah, you find those little nooks and crannies and say, oh my God, I can't believe people did this, but that's part of, that's part of the deal, right? Yeah. I love it. So before we move, you know, much more specifically into the, the topic we're going to focus on, on round you know, family business and intergenerational issues and deals. Just talk a little bit more about what we talked about in your bio, like what you do day to day, because it's not only focused on the topic of this podcast. So give people a broader view of what you do and who you work with. Yeah. Entrepreneur. And I love real estate. That's one of the things that I love to do. And, and we have three, you can say main divisions or arms of our business on the advisory side. So on the advisory side, we have a business growth and optimization, and we do M&A work, we do family business work, we do wealth, you can say advisory on that side as well. So that's one side. We love helping family businesses. And that's why we our business is called Business Brothers. So that's my brother and I. He's the co-founder, and I'm the other founder. And if you've ever watched Property Brothers, I'm not sure if you have, but Property Brothers, is a, they're Canadian, so I'm a Canadian. Yeah. I actually got a chance to meet them about 10 or 12 years ago. And the same premise, my brother's the financial economics, wealth guy, investment banking, you know, he's the guy that can do all the Excel numbers and crank the profitability. I have everything else, the marketing, the sales, the leadership, the operations, you know, how do we get this thing running and running at full speed kind of approach? So both of us make a very good team. We have different demeanors as well. And we did that very strategically. And then the other part of our business is also what we call high performance training. Because one of the things that we identified, this is actually my passion growing up because my background in neuroscience and neuropsychology is, is helping people perform at their highest level. Yeah. So because I've been studying the brain, the body for such a long time, one of the things I noticed in the entrepreneurial world is that, hmm, you know, people are great, they're brilliant, but they don't always have the right amount of energy. They might not be taking care of themselves. 
yeah, they might be good at problem solving, but they're not really structured. You know, how do you, how does a person really perform their best in the business world? So we took what they do in the sports world and brought that into the entrepreneurial slash corporate world. So that's a, a division of ours. So we help professionals perform at a higher level. Like we have some numbers that show maybe 500% increase in productivity, energy, for example, mental clarity. So some pretty awesome stuff there. And then I also do some work with men's leadership. So that's a passion of mine because my dad was an entrepreneur and, you know, a great man. He did everything for us, but he also struggled with alcoholism and because he didn't really leave enough space for himself from a fulfillment perspective or nor did he know how to, like he had time. He just didn't know because he spent so much time working and giving to us his own fulfillment within himself wasn't there. So he, it, you know, it just led to him drinking and and eventually that caught up with him because he had diabetes and he, and he died of a sudden heart attack in, in 2018. Wow. And th that was a big wake up call. But this has been part of our work for a long time where we work with men, helping them be the best leaders they can in their business, be the best leaders they can as a husband and then as a father and then as an individual. Because yeah. a lot of guys will give their business everything, they'll give their families everything, their kids, and then they'll leave themselves the last little bit. And sometimes that's not enough. Yeah. And so we work with a lot of men, and especially in the entrepreneurial world, we see that is we help them be successful in all areas of their life because there's this whole myth, I call it, that you have to, you have to sacrifice one area of your, area of your life to be successful in, in another. That goes to a lot of the deals that we see as well. So yeah. it'll be an interesting conversation when we talk about family dynamics and deals and, and people selling their business. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely want to get there, but I mean, I, I just love what you're up to generally. And, you know, I've done a bunch of men's work myself. You know, I was on men's teams and was, was a tribe leader for one of the men's organizations in the U.S. And, and yeah, and just to, for men to have those outlets and support in, in a way that, you know, I don't want to get into a gender conversation, but, but you, know, you know, we're different. Like, you know, the, 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 there are differences, right? There's a difference between the conversation of equity and the conversation of sameness, right? And society's expectations and the way we're biologically wired, even the way our brains work are different. You know, there, there are gender differences. So, so we can spend a whole podcast on that, which is not what this is about, but it's a fascinating area. And I'm really interested in it. I love when people are providing spaces and support for men. Sometimes you look at people who aren't, you know, successful in various areas, but there are people who are very successful in certain areas. But it comes at the expense of significant other areas of their life, whether it's their health, their relationships, their, you know, you name it. So love that you're doing that work. Uh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So let's let's jump in. I want to get into the, you know, the family business conversation and the generational stuff, how it affects deals. I mean, this is a topic that it's been a while since we talked about. It. Anyway, I look back. I mean, so for listeners, and I would suggest you, you know, you go back to some of these old episodes as well, if you're interested in the family business conversation, but it's been a while. I mean, this will be episode, I don't even know what's going to be, but probably, you know, 210, 220, somewhere, I don't know, somewhere around there. And um, and it, the last episode I think we did anything on family business was episode 110. So it'll be about two years ago. And that was with Farida and Ramia Elagami, who work with some of the very high-end, uh, you know, wealthy international families. So that's a very interesting episode. And then we also touched on, and that was much more in terms of the business partnership end and how you work together in a family business, not really around the conversation of exit and deals that we're going to talk about now. It was more on the business partnership kind of deal as as opposed to the, you know, the, the M&A and exit deal. 
Uh, and then we did touch a little bit on exit, you know, uh, back on episode 93 with Lori Barkman, who we talked to, had a broader conversation about preparing for exit and, uh, and talked a little piece about family business there. So listeners, you know, if, if, if I'm sure you're going to find this podcast fascinating. And if you really want to delve into and do a little mini curriculum on, on, on family business and, and deals, you'll have a, a three podcasts to listen to. So Pradeep, let's, let's talk about that. You know, what are the, I mean, there's so many questions I can ask you, but let's just start at a very basic level, right? I mean, when you business partnerships, you know, bring their challenges and opportunities when family's not involved, right? And I've, you know, had successful business partnerships and some, you know, ones that turned out not to work out, at least in the long term. But when you add in family dynamic, just, we're not even talking about getting to deals yet, just, right, just in terms of doing business <laughs> together. You know, there's a, there's a lot that comes in there. So, you know, what are, you know, what are some of the things that, you know, the additional dynamics that, you know, that you see that come up commonly and then, you know, and then we'll apply it over to more of the exit and M&A side, but, you know, just, just what, what does that additional layer bring, you know, in the conversation of family business? Yeah. Well, it's, that's such a loaded question because we see how many businesses struggle and fail in the first place. Right. And then we also see how many marriages and relationships fail and struggle. Now you add the two together, the odds are right. very slim. Right. Extremely slim. It, it adds a whole other uh, layer of complexity that is even more challenging because it, it makes it that much more emotional. Yeah. And we know that when you're making the deal, you know, trying to be rational, trying to keep emotions out of it, when you don't have any family involved, is tough enough. And then you add on families or your family members or the next generation, your children who think that they're going to get the business or maybe even get it for free or whatever that is, and you're potentially thinking about selling, whatever that looks like, you know, it adds a whole different level of complication, if not done properly, can go completely by the wayside. And that's why we there are professionals out there that work specifically with family businesses. I can tell you just for myself, I had uh, worked with family businesses for a long time. I grew up in family business. Yep. And so I, I understood a lot of the dynamics. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I started to work with business owners was because I grew up in family business and I saw the competitive advantage that my parents had because they were a couple that were on the same page working together and they were fairly good from a business perspective. You could see their challenges as well. My dad, yep. you know, sometimes would throw a fit because of this and, you know, my mom would, would kind of calm them down and then, but they both had their expertise, but it, it gave me a sense of why do family businesses succeed and why are some family businesses more successful than other family businesses and other, let's just say, non-family businesses. So there is a strategic advantage if done properly. All right. So let's go there. So what is the strategic advantage and, and, and then why do so many family businesses not leverage that, that <laughs> and, and run into problems? Well, one of them for sure is the ability to be nimble. Yeah. Is when you are family members, you can actually, like for my example, an example is my brother and I, I call up my brother and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Should we invest in this? What do we do? There's no formal tape. We are the only two shareholders and owners and away we go. So the complexity there can be a lot easier, simpler to go through that red tape as well as sharing of assets. Right. Because typically families share assets and we see this a lot, especially in the immigrant community. And we yeah. wonder why immigrants are so successful so fast into coming to the country because a lot of them live in the same household for the first number of years because they're trying to share assets and cut the cost and expenses. And it works out very well for them. 
Yes. Might not work out well from the compl- dynamics of conflict and stuff like that, but from a financial perspective, yeah, because they put everything into their business and they all have what we call similar interests, right? And they're all on the same page. And a lot of the times, life stages have a different, um, have an impact as well, because typically in family businesses, if let's just say across similar generations, they're in similar life stages. Mm-hmm. So they can all understand each other more and be on the same page strategically. If you're non-family, let's just say shareholders, some shareholders might have different interests. Some may be in a state of retirement where they're like, I just want to get dividends. I want to get the maximum payout. Whereas others like, no, we got to invest. You know, we got to reduce the dividends and just continue to grow the business. So there seems to be more alignment on the family business side as well and commitment. Commitment is another thing. This is their blood, sweat, and tears that people put into this. They will do everything that they can to make sure it succeeds. So there's a different level of passion and persistence and commitment in the family business that I don't see a lot of in non-family businesses. Yeah. And it, and it's interesting to me because you know, one of the things that I've studied a bit and 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 certainly have had a lot of, you know, because we represent have represented a number of family businesses over the years. Is I mean, you certainly see a lot of that in the first and often second generation because the second generation has been trained by the by the founder. Most often in history, the patriarch, although that's you know started to change, right? But but the point is, it's it's that direct connection, right? It's it's the sons and daughters, you know. And then you know, obviously, there's all these stats that what happen what happens with third generation or fourth generation, you know, and and, and how the the failure rate you know goes goes up. And part of it is is I think, and I'd love to hear what you say. I, I I think I think you know there's two main things for me. One is it's just it's it's another step removed, right? And so usually, you know, there may not be that alignment you talked about may not be as true as it goes out. And then also, it's just math in my mind, right? Because yep. most, you know, m- m- most people have more than one kid, right? So then, you know, w- when you go from founder to the next generation, you have two, three, four kids, whatever, two, three kids, let's say, you know, that's two, three people. But then if those two, three, you know, kids have two or three kids each, now, now you know, now like it becomes exponential and the, yeah. and there's so many more complications because there's more people in the business, outside the business, different, you know, you know, further removed. So in any case, you know, your thoughts on that, but that's the, you know, that's been my thinking about two of the issues. Yeah, I think you're I think you're bang on there. It just gives the more children or cousins or nieces or nephews, however many people are involved, the more more chances of things going sideways. That's yeah. essentially it. And so the other thing too is it's not just the numbers, it's the emotions that are involved as well and the stories that come along with the families. So the the other challenge is the stories, the intergenerational stories and entitlement sometimes or mm. conflicts that started from parents that now trickle down to the kids and the next generation that is a bigger challenge because now it's not just hey you know there's 20 of us cousins it's there's 20 of us cousins plus your dad screwed my dad over 20 years ago out of his shares right so right. that kind of stuff follows families as well so that needs to be dealt with but if you have a, an effective system to put policies or procedures in place, just like any other shareholder agreement with a family board or a board of directors for your business, whatever that looks an effective management team, you're more likely to succeed. And so if that is done early on, the chances for that, that family business to be more successful as generations, you can say grow or there's more people in the family business, whatever that looks like, the higher the chances of, of su- succeeding. Yeah, yeah. 
So let, let's bring it into the conversation of, you know, deals and exit. You know, I mean, listen, at a fundamental level, you know, the decision to sell to the, if there's a decision to sell to the outside on a family business is a very much more complex decision. I mean, listen, selling any business is a big decision, right? And any founder, or even if it's the next generation, if they grew up in the business, there's going to be an attachment to it, you know, even without the family dynamic involved. But certainly if there's family legacy involved, even just that decision on whether to sell, right, becomes a bigger conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because there's different opinions when it comes to that. And now you have, even though people don't have a legal right, for example, next generation, they might not be technically owners, but they have a lot to say. Yes. Spouses, for example, spouses of the next generation, like th these are what we call non-owner influences that have almost just as much because uh, let's just say the founding generation or the, the existing ownership generation, they don't want to screw up the relationships that they have. So what is the point of someone working their butt off in their family business and selling it if they're not going to have access to their grandkids now as a result? Yeah. Right. So now there's so much more complexity because of family dynamics. Yeah. It's powerful. So, you know, those factors, just differences, and, you know, also the, even the conversation of intergenerationally, you know, the, the interest, how do families, businesses that work well get through that positively? I'm sure corporate governance instructions, like you said, but, you know, there's also obviously a much more personal, emotional mindset, you know, kind of element to that conversation as well. Right. Yeah, the, the ones that I've seen that have worked out the best, I always see a professional involved. Yeah. So I always see some kind of professional involved, whether it's on the family side or the business side or a combination of the three, right? You get the family, the business, and the ownership. There's some kind of person that is acting as a strategic advisor to make sure that the proper things are being done and nothing is being missed. And a lot of the times, while there are hiccups or there are challenges, sometimes things are missed. Mm. So, for example, if the right tax advice is not given or missed completely, now you could have an entire generation that is screwed in terms of taxes, whether it's a previous or the next generation. Yeah. And that causes more conflict, right? It causes more emotions. So having the right people on your team is important and having conversations far in advance. And this is something that families are not good at. <laughs> There's a lot of assumptions that are made, a lot of, in you can say, non-factual agreements or non-written agreements that have been made. And a lot of the times they're not followed through with. So the sooner the tougher conversations are had, the more effective the transition will be. And I've seen this happen where families, where literally one child thinks that they're going to get the business and they don't get a single piece of ownership and mm. they are pissed or whatever it is. I've seen where children that are not even part of the business, it's very common, want to cut of the business because even though their sibling or siblings have been working day and night in the business yeah. and have helped it grow. So th these are common things. So proactive co communication, proactive conversations, having a plan that everybody agrees upon prior to well in advance, having a strategic advisor on their side is very important. And the other thing is nipping, I'm going to say the bad apples in the butt early on. And we, we have this all the time is there's one person that just likes to cause a stink. And if you can get to that person sooner, faster, whether it's eliminate, minimize, make them happy, whatever you need to do, that needs to be addressed sooner than later. Mm. So those are, th those are very important and having everybody at the table. So the, having the right professionals, 
Corey, is very important, right? You know this through the deal process, but it's just as important to have them at the right time when you're strategizing about transitions, not when the transition is actually happening. So when you have your legal professional, your accounting, your tax professional, you have your family advisor at the table a couple of years in advance, at least as a minimum, then you will have the right insight and the right advice. Then people have the time to actually get get the, the right things set up but also to sit with some of the difficult conversations that have been had, because sometimes time can heal. Yeah. Last thing you want to do is have tough conversations six months or three months in advance of a deal closing. People are pissed because now that's just one more potential for that deal to not go through. Because one single, you, you know, this uh, you get a lawyer involved that's against the deal, it can just throw the deal completely sideways. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, and it's really sad in the situations where things go bad. I mean, you know, you know, it's interesting. I, I obviously won't mention anything about them in terms of even industry, forget name, but you know, we, we have a client, they run several very successful companies in a particular industry and it's, it's run by two factions originating from two brothers, next generations in on, on all sides is effectively owned by four trusts, which are like two on one side and two on the other side. And let me just put it this way. I look at their level of success despite all the issues and wonder what they could do if, if there was alignment, like, because, you know, they're, they're hamstrung uh, on not being able to move forward on certain things because they, you know, they deadlock, right. And then there's all these family dynamics and, you know, you know, I, re- I remember if anybody grew up in New York, there's still, I think they're still there, still called Paragon Sporting Goods. There was a time. In Paragon, it's long. I think somebody bought someone else out. I think they might have even sold it, you know, on the outside now. But there was a time when, when you went into Paragon, you, if you bought something on the first or second floor, you had to pay for it on the first or second floor. If you bought something on the third or fourth floor, you had to pay for it on the third or fourth floor. The reason for that was because two brothers couldn't get along and they literally split Mm. the store into, you know, top two floors and bottom two floors. And the customer experience, right? was was totally like i you know i remember the first time because it was a time it wasn't like that then they got into a dispute that's how they resolved it and then you know i was like you know i was like wait i can't pay for this i gotta pay for this here and that there like i mean you know so they were really to create a horrible customer experience because of you know because of their disputes it's amazing what happens when things go bad yeah that's interesting you say that because that 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 just says it all but you're absolutely right i that's a really good point because Family businesses, they could be doing so much better and actually making that much more on the exit if they actually got their acts together. So I think that's a really good point for the listeners out there, because at the end of the day, if we take a look at business, it's about money. If we're taking a look at about the deal, obviously you want to be satisfied. Everybody gets their fair share. You have a post-retirement plan or next, next venture, whatever that looks like. But if you can get your family together and make twice as, and I think twice as much as even understating it in a lot yeah. of the cases that I've seen. Yeah. Because I've seen, I've, I've worked with families where I'm like, you know, you realize you can get this, like this is possible. Put in the time, the effort for the next, just get along for the next three years. This is what you can come out with rather than this. Some people can, can make it work. Some people can't, but it's a really good point that you brought up. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. 
It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Let's talk about the eggs a little bit. Let's say they are selling. I mean, because listen, on the on the one hand, that one of the potential benefits of family business is that there is potentially much more internal succession opportunities available. Although as the math goes up and everything, they get it actually becomes even more complex on that side, right? So maybe we can talk about that in a moment. But let's assume that they, you know, that they do sell the outside. You know, one of the other challenges, right, is around, you know, buyers are often concerned about buying family businesses, right? For a number of reasons. So talk a little bit about what you see in that area and how you, you know, what are those additional concerns that a outside buyer might have and how you how you address some of those? Yeah, I think from a buying perspective, I think it's just like anything else with some additional complexities. A, they don't want the deal to go sideways and there's a higher chance of that happening with family businesses. You know, I already talked about that. Spouses, in-laws, exes, all that kind of stuff that can add into it. The second is really just like, again, most businesses, the dependency of the family members in the family business. And right. we do see this more often where the family members are so ingrained in the business and not just one, right? Now we're talking about multiple family members right. or you know, a whole whole slew of people that are ingrained in there. So now you have, here's the interesting part. You have bought out mat ownership, but you might still have family members as management. Yeah. Now, what do you do, right? Because these people are still, you know, they're not owners now, but they could potentially have a lot more clout on this organization and because they're still highly ingrained into it. Now your customers and clients, right? a lot of the times are doing business with that family business because of the family members. So what happens if things change and culture changes? And again, it's it's prominent in every industry, in every situation, but that much more family business because the family itself is a big part of the identity of a family business. Yeah, It's a big part of the brand as well and the brand value. I know a lot of people don't take a look at that from a goodwill perspective on a balance sheet, but it it does mean a lot, especially if it's a community type of business. And, and we see that quite a bit. I've seen businesses where families have sold a business and they had great structure. They had everything in place, management, everything, and customers just stopped going to them. Yeah, People stopped buying from them because they just didn't have that family feel anymore. Now, whether it was a private equity or strategic acquisition, whatever it may be, it just doesn't have that that feeling for that piece. And so there's a, sometimes the lack of trust or maybe the values change a little bit. But let's let's be honest, right? Let's be a little bit open and honest. I think most people prefer doing business with with businesses owned by families because there's a more personal touch, there's a more a higher trust level. They feel like, hey, you know, this family's not out to get me or gouge me for every last penny. As soon as a corporation comes in or a private equity company comes in, you automatically get the feeling that they're about, they're ready to milk it, right? They want to milk this sector to the very end. So that attitude could change quickly, especially if the staff, right? If the staff are attached to the family, that's another one. The family owner, they lose momentum, they lose engagement, and that can have a serious impact on the business as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and what about, you know, family member executive John is great and family member executive <laughs> salary is great, great. But, you know, Charlie, who runs marketing, you know, is is in there because he's a family member. But, you know, is, you know, now the buyer comes in, 
you know, listen, we know buyers do this all the time, right? They look at who they want to keep from management and who they don't. But in, in other deals, you don't have a family dynamic to deal with on top of that, right? Yeah. And again, we see that part of the deal as well. Typically, we don't see this being such a sticky point when owners, for example, there might be, let's just say an individual owner, and we'll call it a non-traditional family business. They say, well, I do want my team. I do want my employees to be taken care of. Please yep. make sure right, that that happens. But when you have family involved, now it's like, you know, like you said, you know, little Timmy was my favorite nephew. You can't get rid of him. Like whatever you do, you can't get rid of him. And so that might be a term of the agreement. And you'll be surprised. People say, well, no, you know, you, uh, deals aren't broken on little things like, yeah, they absolutely are. Yeah. Deals can be hooked up on one individual. It, that makes no sense whatsoever, but that can happen. Yeah, because I mean, listen, there are a number of industries, you know, now, certainly over the last number of years, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's cooling a little bit, but there's so much money come into the M&A space, right, over the last number of years. And and for some buyers, there's an opportunity to cash out at, you know, used dollars, higher multiples, more turns on, you know, on the multiples than, 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 than have historically been there in various industries. And for some, you know, that, that's great. And I'm not saying they don't care about the customers and clients, but, you know, but, 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 you know, some of them, feel like, oh, okay, well, they'll be taken care of and and this is my opportunity. Other folks, even outside family businesses, put a higher weight on other factors, right? Mm-hmm. Having their employees taken care of, having their legacy, you know, continue. Yes. And that's outside family business. Now, when you, again, when you add in a lot of the dynamics of family businesses that make things like legacy and things like reputation, right? And things like, you know, taking care of people because, not only do you operate like a family, but you actually were a family. Mm-hmm. You know, it 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 adds. You know, it deepens those those non monetary factors often, right? Yeah, definitely. And we've seen we've seen families significantly start large businesses where let's just say I'm going to use an example: two brothers, one sold off his share, the other, whether it was to a corporate strategic or some kind of you know rarely private equity, but let's just say they sold off their share, and the other brother is left over, and he doesn't like what's happening. He doesn't mm-hmm. like the decisions that are being made or the input that's, and so he'll, he'll basically say, or maybe she, well, I'm using the example of two brothers, but he'll say, no, I want to buy back. I want to buy the entire company now. You know, this doesn't make sense for me because this is screwing up our family legacy. And so then we see that kind of stuff. We, we've seen that happen over and over again as well. So people's emotions, right? We're ultimately what we're talking about is people's emotions. Yeah. And that is what gets tied in and adds so much more nuances. The more people you add in your family business, the higher the level of emotional complexity and the dynamics that can happen. Now, if we take a look at it from the perspective, we, you know, we're, we're seeing it from a downside perspective, right. but there's a lot of upsides of family businesses as well. Like, you know, what we talk about, there's family businesses that are acquiring other businesses. Yes. And that's the plus, right? They, they have join their assets to say, let's start building our portfolio and let's start buying other businesses. And so that's that's a great strategy for family businesses as well, because they have the capital or the equity or whatever that looks like. And that's that's a great plus. And and, and as you said earlier, in a different context, they're also they can act quickly and they're nimble, right? And often mm-hmm. in deals, that ability to act quickly, quickly especially if you have the, the, the financing and or the capital you know, to, to do a deal can, can give you a big advantage of other players, right? Who have, you know, can't make decisions that quickly. Yeah. I see this, especially in the real estate space. I see this a lot with family, family owned construction companies. They're, they're great because they just go in, they'll just gobble things up because people are aligned. They see the opportunity and 
And real estate can be a very timely thing. And so they can make decisions a lot faster and away they go. So there's there's huge benefits in that. So that's that's why we see a lot of the success as well. And I think we're seeing a higher trend of this, whether it's traditional family office space or non-traditional where families are just saying, let's just buy up companies. And family businesses are becoming more sophisticated as education yeah. and professionals are are able to help them out. I think within, you know, I think it's within the last decade that that professionals have focused more on helping family business strategically and family business owners have said, let's be more strategic. And we're seeing the sophistication level go up, which is a huge, again, another huge plus because people are learning now the benefits strategically to say, hey, look, we can outperform our competitors now. We can outperform a private equity company, right? Because by the time they raise the capital, whatever that looks like, or their policies, we can be nimble. We can go in there and snatch these things up. So there's, I, I see the space changing over the next five to 10 years for family businesses that have the equity, the capital to invest. Yeah. And, you know, and it's interesting because we have this niche and we're representing a lot of people in financial services and, you know, wealth management and, and, you know, a sector of that obviously is family office, right? And single family and multifamily offices. And one of the things that the evolution of that independent sector has, has brought is exactly what you're talking about. You know, it used to be, I mean, listen, you know, you, you, you had the big name, you know, the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and whatever, right. Who own the railroads and the, you know, all that stuff, you know, you always had the families, the high end that continued to own businesses, but you know, the super high end, right. But now I think it's been, I don't want to say use the, the word democratize is probably a little, you know, is a overkill because it's not democratized. It's, it's still a tiny percentage, but you know, but you, you've gone from the tiny of the tiny of the tiny to, you know, like you know, just well, more sort of wealthy families who there's a, there's an infrastructure, there's an ecosystem, you know, around them, right. In these, in these family offices, multifamily offices that has definitely had a shift from just preservation of capital or investment of capital. And, you know, whether it's in the stock market or maybe in some alternative, you know, real estate funds or whatever it is mm. to actually having more of a focus on, on, on business acquisition and, you know, an investment, right. I mean, no question. Yeah, I think again, yeah, that sophistication level is going because what I typically see a lot of family offices or family business owners invest in outside of their normal business is real estate, yeah. which is all, always great. But now they're they're seeing other alternative investments again, which adds. It's great to diversify your portfolio. I think that's a smart thing to do. So that overall di diversification is helping families as well because I think, and this is part of the whole family dynamics as well because you have. One family member who might really like one particular type of investment and the other family member that might like another type of investment. And sometimes that can cause conflict and challenges as well. Or maybe if they get along and they say, well, you know, you manage that portfolio, I'll manage this portfolio. It can be a good thing as well. So yeah, so much of that space happening right now, especially here in Canada as well, because Canada, I'm, I'm going to say is a fairly, it's a young country mm -hmm. in, in general. And the wealth here, I'm going to say, is not as old as in the United States, but that is that is changing as well. The sophistication level in Canada has changed significantly as the next generation comes in, is more educated. The requirements as well. Before, family members could just go into the family business and start working. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, a lot of family business have uh, policies where they say, Hey, look, you want to be part of our team. You got to go get an MBA and you may have to spend five years outside of our business, yeah. maybe in a similar industry or outside to come in and even qualify. That is, I think that's phenomenal. 
because that just brings a different level of expertise and breadth to the family and increases their level of skills and knowledge that traditionally they wouldn't have. Yeah. Let's talk about another intergenerational thing, which I'm wondering how much you see. I've certainly seen it at times. Is just the difference in willingness to take risks, maybe. And it's really interesting dynamic because to some extent, you know, the, the original founder is the one that took the original big risk, right? And maybe in some ways more of an, you know, is often more of a quote, true entrepreneur than anybody else because everybody else is coming into something that exists. But at the same time, it's often the younger generation wants to grow faster, bigger, right? Expand, you know, on, and sometimes that causes tensions. What have you seen around that whole dynamic? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's that double-edged sword. And here's what we traditionally see. If we're taking a look at the founding generation, yes, they have taken the risk to start the business. Like that is the ultimate risk right there. But what ends up happening is as they build equity, right? This, the equity in the business and the capital, they they tend to pull their foot off the gas a little bit and say, yep. you know what, especially age, right? Age is a big factor for anybody because they don't want to see their retirement fund be depleted. So they start to pull the gas off and they say, okay, you know what, you know, we did this this way. And now the next generation, you guys should, you know, do it this way. You know, example, not having too much debt, right? You don't want to have too much debt in your business. You want to be too leveraged where the next generation will be like, you don't understand leverage. You know, we can use it to our advantage. That happens very, very often. The interesting thing here is inside a lot of the next generation owners or management team, they are scared as well. Mm. They are scared because they have these ideas. They want to grow the business. They have confidence in themselves, but they don't want to screw it up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, here's, here's, I'm just going to, you know, use a flip analogy, Tom, whose mom, you know, Susan has spent her entire life building the business. And Susan is 70 years old and, and Tom doesn't want to, you know, let his mom down. Yeah. Right. And so what do you do in that instance? He knows there's opportunity to grow, but he doesn't want to, because sometimes that happens. Sometimes the next gen or anybody can make a bad move in business and businesses can go under in a couple of years. So what do you yeah. say to your parents that have spent their entire life building this business? I see a lot of that where they won't say it publicly. Yeah. But because of the nature of the work that we do, because we work on the individual as well, they open up their fears and, and what's holding them back. And so it's, it's, you know, they have that risk profile. They want to do more, but they're also scared on the other side. Yeah. I mean, listen, and, and that's, you know, that's natural anyway. But when you're talking about letting down family, parents, family legacy, you know, family reputation, I mean, boy, that, that gets complex. And, Nobody yeah. wants to be known as a son or daughter that screwed up, you know, a 50-year-old business that was doing extremely well, and it was a big part of the community. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and here, here's the interesting part, because, you know, some people would think then that the decision is between, oh, do I just let things cruise along and it's going to be fine, or do I take additional risk and do something different? But in many, many businesses and industries, actually letting it cruise around, along the way it used to be done is actually not fine because the industry is evolving and changing because competitors are coming in because the way it used to work doesn't work anymore. So, you know, even that, you know, seemingly safe, you know, approach of not making a lot of change, you know, often turns out not to be the safe approach, right? Not to be the right approach. 
Yeah, I think competition is getting tougher and tougher. We see that in industries. We can tell by the Fortune 500 or the Fortune 100 in terms of the longevity and sustainability of businesses. That number in terms of what it took them, you know, let's just say 20 years, let's just say the average Fortune 500 company it took, you know, 80 years they'd be in business and they go under. Well, it's a lot shorter now. I don't know what yeah. the latest stats are, but I think it's, they're saying, you know, seven to 10 could be, could be a good life for a business these days, which is kind of scary. Uh, and it's because people, again, the, the sheer amount of information, people can access information on their competition. People can access information about how to create a new product or service. You could just, you could start a business from your garage these days. So the entries to barrier, the information, the challenges, all of these things I think are challenging businesses, not just family businesses, but businesses in general more and more. And I don't think complacency is an option anymore. Yeah. Unless you have a specific trademark or patent or, or, you know, you're locked in some kind of resources that other competitors don't have access to. You have to, you have to grow and you have to evolve and you have to innovate. Yeah. Not, not a question. And even in those cases, you're right. I mean, that might buy you some time, but eventually the technology is going to change or something's going to change. And even that patent or IP or whatever you have is going to be mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, it buys you time, but, but, but the world evolves, right? Yeah, um, exactly. I love it. So listen, we can talk about this for hours, right? I mean, there's so much in this in this family business and it's generational dynamic around in general, around business, certainly around deals, but we are coming to the end of our time. Uh, before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else that just is burning in your mind around around this topic or, you know, the way you work with clients or issues that you're seeing or opportunities, you know, that you're seeing that we haven't covered? Yeah, I, I the the one thing is because it really is all about family. And I, and I want to leave this on a high note, but I, I want family members to know that it, although it's business, taking care of family is very important and being aware of that because what is, what is, what good is money? And we work with, you know, you talked about successful people. We work with extremely successful people as well. And, and we've seen them, you know, they've spent an entire lifetime building a business and then they feel like they have nothing because the family wasn't around or there's some kind of conflict. So I encourage people to try to not avoid that, to deal with that head on, because the number one strategy for families to, when they see conflict is to avoid it, Yeah, right? It's not, don't avoid it, deal with it, obviously in a civil and a rational manner and a mature manner, but you don't want to avoid it. And you want to make sure that everything decision that you do, not that everybody has to be on the same page, but you have to take a look at who's going to be impacted in the family and what the long-term repercussions are going to be and do that far in advance. I think that's my last you know, piece there. Do it far in advance. If you think that five years before you make a decision to do whatever is too early, it's not. No. It is not. No. And, and, and you know, it's, I think that's such a great point. And the whole avoidance thing, I think, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why getting other professionals, right? You know, coaches, attorneys, advisors, family advisors, business advisors involved is so crucial because listen, some people just avoid stuff because they, they really don't want to deal with the issue. And, but there are plenty of people who like deep down, they want to deal with it. They just don't know how, right? You know, they just don't know how to broach it. They're afraid. There's a lot of family dynamics involved. There's risk involved. And that all is still challenging, but it becomes much more possible with trained professionals who work with family businesses, who know how to create an environment for people to have those kind of conversations and help facilitate work, them working through that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I can't tell you how many f families have fallen apart because someone or some people just didn't have a conversation. 
Yeah. That's all it takes sometimes. It might open up a can of worms, but at least you're still talking. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you can, you can hopefully deal with that can. Okay. Great. Where can people find out more about all the great services that you provide if they want to know more about you, which I'm sure they will after this episode? Yeah. So I, you can check out our website, businessbrothers.ca. You can also reach out to me on social media. I'm most active on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to connect with you. Please let me know that you've listened to this podcast episode, or you can reach out to me through email. So that is team at sanga, S-A-N-G-H-A, worldwide.com. Uh, more than happy to reply. We'd love to hear from you and, and to see what you're dealing with. And just, just to clarify, you mentioned Canada a couple of times, and that's where you're based. But, but of course, your email has worldwide in it. So I just clarify, I assume you have clients outside of Canada as well. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So most of our actually work is actually in the U.S. Yeah. So we that's where we started from, actually. That was our base, and that's where we grew. It just so happens because of COVID, and we didn't spend as much time traveling to the U.S. We did a little bit. We did focus a lot, a, a lot more on Canada within the last couple of years. But now sure. that we're able to travel again freely, we're back in the U.S. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, Pradeep, my final question on the podcast is about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And that is, for me, means everything from freedom from all from oppression for all people in the world to why I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom <laughs> mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Freedom f- for me really means, I, I use this term a lot, is the ability to do what I want when I want with whoever I want. That, that essentially to me is freedom. And I think we all have the ability to do, do that in some way, shape or form. It's not necessarily tied to money, but it's tied to our ability to live life on our terms. And I think if we're talking about the, the topic of family business, the other important thing is to acknowledge our family members and what their definition of freedom is because we have perhaps next generation coming in or children coming in that feel like they don't have the freedom to make the choice of whether they want to work in the family business or they don't. Sometimes we can force them on that. That is another big factor. I say in that spirit of freedom and family business, I would say respect everybody's freedom. Although you might, as a parent, as a sibling, you might think you know best for other people. It's ultimately their life. And figuring that out, asking them and allowing them to live life on their terms is very important. Mm-hmm. Love that. Love that. And I love the contextualization of freedom in the context of the family business conversation. Pradeep Sangha, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Hey, thanks, Corey. I had a great time. Thanks for, for a great conversation. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.